Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome to the Full Spectrum Podcast. On today's episode, attorneys from Kelly Dry's Communications Practice highlight items from the FCC's October open meeting. First, partner Chip Yergaitis will discuss the commission's adoption of a notice of inquiry to explore the potential restructuring of the 12.7 gigahertz band to accommodate the introduction of next generation and other mobile wireless services. Following CHIP, partner Hank Kelly will discuss caller ID authentication on non-IP networks. Finally, Special Counsel Mike Dover will cover the FCC's consideration of a notice of proposed ruling to strengthen the operational readiness of the emergency alert system and wireless emergency alerts. I'll now turn it over to CHIP. Thank you, Lorena. The Commission's agenda for last Thursday's meeting included just one spectrum item. The FCC adopted a notice of inquiry or notice or NOI on expanding use of the 12.7 to 13.25 gigahertz band for mobile broadband or other expanded use. As an aside, the commission's notice does not once define what other expanded uses might be. So that will be left up to the public. While a lot of the band specific regulatory focus in 2022 for terrestrial uses has been on completing the auctions and associated licensing in the 3.45 to 3.55 gigahertz band and the 2.5 gigahertz band, both of which are in the lower part of the so-called mid-band. This new NOI focuses the commission's attention toward the upper end of the mid-band. At the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona early this year, Chairwoman Rosenworcel of the FCC announced the commission's intention to identify spectrum in the seven to 16 gigahertz range that can support 5G technologies and beyond. She reiterated this intent at the NTIA National Spectrum Symposium hosted by the National Telecommunications and Information Administration last month. The NOI makes good on this promise. In the NOI, the FCC announces it will explore how it can intensify and expand the use of the 550 megahertz between 12.7 and 13.25 gigahertz. This is largely non-federal spectrum allocated to non-federal fixed mobile and fixed satellite service uses. The primary uses of the band today are for fixed satellites and associated earth stations, broadcast auxiliary service or BAS, and fixed or mobile cable television relay or CARS stations, as well as fixed microwave. But the current uses by these services appear somewhat limited, making the 12.7 gigahertz band a candidate for restructuring and the introduction of new entrants. The NOI explains that a couple dozen space stations use the band for primary uplinks, earth to space, and secondary downlinks, space to earth. There are about three dozen Earth stations associated with 27 fixed locations and another eight Earth stations that 
are earth stations in motion or ESIMs, as well as temporary fixed stations. The BAS and CAR services support fixed point-to-point -point transmission of television signals, such as between television studios and transmitters and cable television head ends. BAS fixed links are concentrated primarily in major cities along the east and west coasts. There are some limited mobile uses of the band today by subclasses of BAS and CAR services, specifically land mobile television pickup stations used to transmit programming material from special events or remote locations, including electronic news gathering back to television studios or other central received locations. A few hundred common carrier and operational fixed microwave service licensees in the band are, per the commission, concentrated in the West Coast cities and states. All of these conditions make this band a ripe target for reconsideration of how it's used today. To preserve these uses in the band and allow consideration of new uses, on September 19th, the International Bureau, the Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau, the Media Bureau, and the Wireless Telecommunication Bureau jointly announced a 180-day licensing freeze effective as of that date. Generally, this freeze affects the filing of new or modification applications for licenses or other authorizations in the 12.7 gigahertz band. This sort of freeze has been done in other spectrum bands before when the FCC is considering potential major changes, such as in the 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz band, uh, also known as the C-band in 2019. The FCC uses freezes like this to help preserve the options available to it for consideration of additional uses of a band while limiting the potential for speculative applications that might be filed in anticipation of potential future actions by the commission. Accompanying the NOI adopted last Thursday was an order from the commission extending the Bureau's freeze pending the outcome of the NOI docket, GN22352, while the FCC did provide the bureaus with jurisdiction on an ongoing basis to modify the freeze. Generally, the freeze does not apply to applications by incumbent licensee stations for renewal and cancellation, or to certain minor modifications by incumbents of emerging technology earth stations, as well as, as, well as emerging technology broadcast auxiliary cars and fixed microwave licenses, provided that the incumbent licensee can establish that the modification would not add to any relocation costs in the future, if applicable. The Bureau's freeze, which was extended by the commission in the NOI order, uh, will allow for requests for waiver of the freeze on a case-by-case -case fact specific basis. I mentioned earlier that uh, the band is primarily a non-federal band, but there is one specialized federal allocation in the 12.7 gigahertz band from 12.75 to 13.25 gigahertz uh, in particular. This is a federal allocation specifically limited to the deep space network uh, operated by NASA. A receive only earth station in Goldstone, California is one of three deep space earth stations worldwide, the other two being near Madrid and Spain, 
and in Australia that are used for communications with deep space interplanetary missions. The NOI notes that the Goldstone Earth Station cannot be relocated and it must be protected from harmful interference by new entrants, regardless of any licensing or regulatory regime the FCC may adopt. The band is also used by the National Science Foundation uh, radio astronomy observatories on an opportunistic basis. Uh, this is done as a calibration aid for the radio navigation satellite services. Other than that, there are no other federal uses, uh, according to the NOI. So in the heart of the NOI, the commission seeks further detail on these current non-federal uses of the 12.7 gigahertz band I mentioned earlier. They also want to know about the potential for more efficient and intensive use of the band and how to achieve that, and whether the band is suitable for mobile broadband or other expanded use. Because there are existing operations in the band, the FCC seeks comment on whether and how it may provide opportunities for new uses, while at the same time protecting investments made by incumbents and avoiding undue disruption to their operations. The commission seeks comment on a variety of options, such as band sharing between new entrants and incumbents, relocation of some incumbents to different spectrum, to more spectrally efficient radio technologies, or to different media, such as fiber to replace fixed microwave links. And finally, the commission seeks comment about creating incentives for accelerated relocation or repacking of incumbent licensees to make the 12.7 gigahertz band more rapidly available for new uses, possibly through exclusive licensing combined with cost sharing procedures to apportion incumbent relocation costs among new entrants that would benefit from the restructuring of the band. The commission is open to the possibility that some of these methods may be used in combination in different parts of the band. The commission seeks comment on both static and dynamic spectrum sharing as possible options. Indeed, the NOI's virtual referendum on whether this band would benefit from employing previously adopted sharing methodologies, such as those used for the CBRS or Citizens Broadband Radio Service in the 3.5 gigahertz band, part 15 unlicensed use of white spaces, and or unlicensed sharing of the six gigahertz band. All of these use an automated system for determining operating frequency availability for devices. Commission asks, how might these methodologies for sharing be used uh, to enable incumbent licensees to share with licenses authorized through competitive bidding? The NOI doesn't stop there though, and it also asks whether the 12.7 gigahertz band is suitable to adopt a lightly licensed non-exclusive sharing regime, such as that used in the 780 and 90 gigahertz bands, or possibly long-term sensing technologies to support sharing with incumbents, which has been proposed in the lower 37 gigahertz proceeding. So the commission is looking at all of the tools in the tool bag uh, to determine what is the best way to move forward in the 12.7 gigahertz band. The commission also solicits comment about potential impacts on uses in adjacent bands that could result from opening up 12.7 to 13.25 gigahertz to mobile broadband or other expanded uses. I would finish by noting that 
only one material change was made to the final NOI from the draft shared three weeks ago before the FCC's open meeting. In response to the only ex parte submitted prior to the meeting, Sunshine Agenda, a, an ex parte letter submitted by CTIA, the final NOI includes an addition that whether for consideration of relocation of incumbents or possible sharing regimes, quote, it will be important to have clear information about the nature and density of incumbent use, close quote. And further, the FCC seeks comment on whether to require incumbents in the 12.7 gigahertz band to submit information detailing their current uses of the band. This sort of requirement possibly would serve as a precursor for one condition for incumbents to seek any sort of interference protection from new entrants. Again, this is a notice of inquiry. Uh, it is not a rulemaking, and, and therefore the commission cannot directly uh, develop rules out of uh, this proceeding. However, uh, there's no doubt that the comments that are received and the record that's developed will have a heavy influence on any rules that the commission does eventually propose. The NOI and order were effective immediately upon release last Friday, October 28th, uh, without federal register publication being necessary. And comments are due on the NOI on November 28th with replies due December 27th. My partner, Hank, will now continue by discussing the commission's action regarding caller ID. Thanks, Chip. Appreciate the introduction. Um, like your uh, the, the uh, notice of inquiry that you discussed with respect to the 12.7 gigahertz band. Uh, the commission in its October meeting also initiated, initiated an additional or different uh, notice of inquiry to gather information on how the commission could implement stir shaken uh, to prevent uh, and, and decrease the volume of non-caller ID authenticated telephone calls on non-IP networks. Let me give you a little bit of background first on sort of what the FCC has done in the past with, with respect to, to robocalling and caller ID authentication. In 2021, the commission required that carriers nationwide authenticate all calls using technology called stir shaken. When this network technology is present, consumers can trust that when the phone call rings, the caller is who they say they are and not some scam artist with a false number trying to sell you something that you didn't ask for, don't need. So it helps reduce the number of spoofed calls. But while stir shaken has proven effective in networks that rely on internet protocol, it does not work the same way on the older networks, the TDM networks and the non-internet protocol networks that are out there that might typically be reliant upon, for example, copper loops. Now the Trace Act, which was adopted uh, by Congress requires the FCC to investigate and separately address how to implement stir shaken on non-IP networks. Now the commission's rules require voice service providers with non-IP networks to either upgrade their networks to IP or separately work to develop an authentication solution for non-IP networks. That has been going on over the last year. Uh, the FCC has solicited some additional comments in prior dockets, and now the FCC has initiated this notice of inquiry to, again, learn more about solutions to this issue. Uh, briefly, and I'll make a note at the, at the end, uh, the initial comments are due December 12th, with reply comments due January 11th, uh, 2023. 
So a little bit more background on the, on the, the TRACE Act and caller ID authentication. The TRACE Act directed that Congress require voice service providers to implement caller ID authentication technology. This essentially allows voice service providers terminating calls to their customers to tell their customers when the caller ID has been spoofed or can be reliably be the actual caller that originated the call. Now we've all seen notices on our cell phone that when they warn of a call potentially being spam, um, and this is an example of how that technology, technology plays out. Uh, this also allows carriers, uh, the caller ID authentication process, allows carriers to gather additional information on the call path and then trace back to the previous carrier whether that carrier had properly authenticated the sources of the call or not. And, and this, this framework is essentially the, the, the purpose of stir-shaken uh, technology. Now, stir-shaken has basically two parts. The technical pro First, there's the technical process of authenticating and verifying caller ID information. In authenticating the caller ID information, the originating carrier who has information uh, about the, who, the, who the calling party is, because it's their customer, can verify, should be able to verify, that the call originated from the telephone number that's associated with that particular customer. When that voice service provider um, can then uh, uh, can authenticate the call, it adds a data field to the call information that's associated with the call. And this authentication uh, pass, gets passed along to each subsequent carrier that may touch that call in the call path. When the terminating voice service providers receives the call, the, the identity header that's attached um, can, can then be used by the terminating carrier to, to validate the caller ID information and pass that information on to its, its subscriber. Or if it doesn't, if it's not authenticated, can determine whether uh, it's, an, it's a, a spam call. Now that's part one, that's the stir part. The shaken framework is really a, a, an authentication or validation that the caller ID that's being transmitted is actually valid. Um, and it requires a third party uh, where the originating service provider use an authentication service to create the identity header and then pass that information to a third party, the, the authentication service, which then transmits the authentic, the, the identity header to another service provider that is relied upon by the terminating carrier to authenticate the call. Now that last part is really just a, a authentication of that the caller ID that's being transmitted by the originating service provider is actually valid. Um, and those, so that's essentially what stir shaken is. And, and it imposes obligations on the originating carrier and the terminating carrier uh, to coordinate and validate and authenticate uh, the, the calls that were from where they originate. Now, we've talked in, in prior uh, podcasts about other efforts that the FCC has recently done with respect to suppressing uh, robocalls, um, and, and, with, and particularly with respect to uh, both intermediate providers and gateway providers. So back in May 2022, uh, the commission, among other things, ordered that gateway providers also implement stir-shake on all calls. So gateway providers are essentially an entity that is the first carrier or entity to switch a call from a foreign source. 
So all of these service providers are required to implement Stir Shaken and have a robocall mitigation plan. Um, and so uh, in addition, in the May 22 uh, robocall order, uh, intermediate providers were also uh, required to uh, pass on unaltered authenticated caller ID information along with any SIP calls that they receive to the next provider in the call path. So they must authenticate the caller ID for all unauthenticated calls that they receive that will be exchanged with other providers downstream. Um, that's a requirement on the intermediate service providers. However, they're not obligated to do this if they also, if they instead participate or in addition to participate in traceback efforts. The May 2022 robocall order uh, proposed to eliminate this alternative path of compliance by simply participating in traceback efforts. And instead asked whether the commission should simply require all intermediate providers to authenticate any unauthenticated SIP calls that touch their network. So that's what the FCC has done in the past with respect to robocall. In this notice of inquiry um, was raised because all of the things I just talked about don't actually work on non-IP networks. So the problem here is that the, this technology um, uh, that only works on IP networks and the calls that get exchanged between an originating IP voice service provider and that get terminated to a network provider that operates in TDM or non-IP format, there's no, no possibility for, uh, for caller ID authentication to occur in that situation. So even when the t there's, there's two TDM networks that transmit a call and there's an IP network in the middle, again, it's not possible for the stir-shaking technology to really accurately be applied. Congress, when it adopt, adopted the TRACE Act, asked the commission to address caller ID authentication on nine IP networks and have those voice service providers take reasonable measures to implement effective caller ID authentication. And when the FCC first implemented caller ID for, for IP networks, it essentially gave a waiver to um, or an extension of the obligation as long as the, the non-IP network service providers upgraded their network to IP to implement Stir Shaken or to participate directly in industry efforts to develop a non-IP caller identification solution. Now, this, was, this has been in the works over the last year. Uh, ADIS, which is the Alliance for Telecommunications Industry Solutions, has come up with two alternative potential solutions for uh, how to do caller ID authentication in a non-IP network framework. Um, but they're only partially effective. And so there's two alternative methods. Um, I'm not going to get into the details here. But essentially, the FCC in this notice of inquiry is asking uh, parties whether the ADIS proposals to implement uh, color ID authentication in a non-IP network can be effective. Um, they want to learn more about the limitations of the TDN networks or the non-IP networks, um, how big of an issue robocalling is on, on, TD, on TDM networks. Um, and, and they're asking for uh, input on the critique of the ADIS standards and whether they satisfy the FCC's rules um, and, the, and the intent of the TRACE Act. And then finally, they also seek, uh, with respect to actually the ADIS standards, uh, they, they seek um, uh, comment on alternatives to those ADIS standards. More significantly, though, I think what was more important about this notice of inquiry 
is not really the the FCC's uh, asking for comments about the ATIS network or the ATIS ATIS solutions. Um, they they really want, to, based on my reading of of the notice of inquiry, additional input on whether the more significant issue is to have the non-IP networks, those carriers that are relying more on TDM networks, to tr finally transition their networks to an IP format so that they can more adequately implement stir shaken. And so the FCC is asking whether the, the commission should use this opportunity to encourage or even require those carriers that are not using IP networks to convert and upgrade their networks to IP. Now the FCC, um, had a, a, a committee, uh, the Technology Advisory Committee back in 2011, recommend that uh, all TDM or non-IP networks should be eliminated by 2018. Obviously, that was a couple of years ago, and it didn't happen. Uh, but perhaps now the FCC, in seeking comment about whether all carriers should transition to a full IP network, um, maybe, maybe that's an opportunity the FCC is looking for here with respect to the TRACE Act. To, trend, to make that transition. And so they also see comments on what specific steps should be taken to promote um, the transition from an IP, uh, from a non-IP TDM network uh, to uh, IP networks across the country. And what solutions, um, and whether that's a more viable economic solution uh, than trying to implement ADIS standards on the non-IP networks uh, that that may have a short short term viability. So again, these comments are due December twelfth. Reply comments are due uh, July January eleventh, twenty twenty three. And I think it's really an interesting notice of inquiry, not so much for the uh, whether the ADIS standards are appropriate or not, but really it's another effort by the FCC to now investigate whether all carriers should transition away from TDM networks and go. 100% uh, all, all IP networks throughout the country. So with that, um, I'm going to turn it over, over to uh, Mike Dover, who will talk about the commission's consideration of an NPRM to strengthen the operational readiness of the oper emergency alert system and wireless emergency alerts. So Mike, uh, over to you. Thanks, Hank. In Thursday's FCC uh, open meeting, the commission uh, introduced a notice of proposed rulemaking seeking to strengthen the operational readiness of the emergency alert system and equipment related to the emergency alert um, or EAS for short. This is a follow on uh, NPRM uh, from the last open meeting where the commission um, introduced a uh, an NPRM relating to improving accessibility related to EA, EAS alerts. In this NPRM, uh, the commission proposes to require EAS participants to report to the commission uh, compromises of their EAS equipment, communications, and systems. Uh, for context, EAS participants are analog radio and digital audio broadcast systems, Class A television and low-powered TV stations, analog and digital cable systems, um, wireline and wireless video systems, direct broadcast satellite service providers, and digital audio radio service providers. So in addition to reporting, 
the NPRM proposes to require EAS participants and commercial mobile service providers that participate in the wireless emergency alerts, WEA for short, to annually certify to having a cybersecurity risk management plan in place that employs sufficient security measures to enable the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the alert system. Now, the WEA is a geographically targeted alert, um, or a geographically targeted alert and warning system to EAS-capable mobile devices. In addition, the NPRM also proposes requiring participating commercial mobile service providers that participate in the WEA, WEA to take steps to ensure that only valid alerts are displayed on consumer devices. Uh, as background, the EAS system is a national public warning system. It delivers alerts uh, through broadcasters, cable systems, and other participating providers. The EAS distributes presidential alerts as well as alerts issued by state, local, and the National Weather Service. Historically, the EAS worked on a relay system. A, an alert would be broadcast from one or more EAS participants and relayed from station to station, participant to participant, until all EAS participants affected by the alert received the message and delivered it to the public. However, more recently, EAS alerts can also be distributed through what's called the CAP or Common Alert Alerting Protocol. Uh, IP network system delivered through the uh, internet. The commission, FEMA, and the National Weather Service implement the EAS system at a federal level, and the responsibilities of the commission are to set the parameters and frequencies with which EAS participants test the alert system, um, prohibit unauthorized use of EAS signals and codes, and to require EAS participants to keep their EAS equipment in good working order. The commission is also responsible for WEA standards, including standards on capabilities testing and the election procedures. Uh, commercial mobile service providers voluntarily elect to participate in the WEA. However, those that elect to participate must adhere to the commission established standards. Uh, so the thrust of this NPR um, uh, deals with several recent incidents uh, that raise concerns about the vulnerabilities of the EAS and WEA system. For example, the commission observes and uh, details some EAS attacks that could have been prevented by providers uh, taking simple steps like changing the default password on the EAS equipment or updating network security and device settings on that equipment. Um, other easily done steps include installing security patches that are issued from EAS network manufacturers um, on a timely basis and employing firewalls. With respect to the WEA, uh, there was a nationwide test in 2018. It raised uh, several concerns about the potential for malicious actors to potentially block the alert or issue false WEA alerts to the public. And uh, there's been recent attacks in 2020 and 2021 um, that the commission details in the NPRM uh, that 
demonstrate potential vulnerabilities to the system. As a result, the commission says the MPRM seeks to um, address these potential vulnerabilities. With respect to EAS equipment, the commission seeks comment on uh, the operational readiness of the equipment, specifically seeking information on how frequently EAS equipment encounters defects that prevent it from re receiving or retransmitting alerts. Um, they'd like information on the common types of defects that are um, experienced and the steps necessary to repair those defects and timeframes for, for those repairs. The NPRM specifically asks whether it would serve the public interest to require EAS participants to conduct repairs promptly and with diligence. And if that's not already in the procedure, what the reasons are that EAS participants are not able to do so. The NPRM also seeks comments on whether it would improve operational readiness for the EAS system and public safety in general to increase the situational awareness of the commission, alert originators, and others about the occurrence of equipment defects through notification. The commission asks if such notifications would allow for better identification of technical problems, for example. And if a notification is required, the commission asks and would like comments on what time frame should be used and what information should be included in that notification. Uh, the commission recognizes that um, there would be administrative burdens with regard to the notifications and seeks to reduce the administrative burdens on EAS participants while balancing the uh, safety and public safety related to the operational readiness of the EAS system. Um, for example, the commission inquires if it should remove certain current requirements that EAS participants make with regard to entries in their broadcast station log or cable system record showing the date and time the equipment was removed and restored to service and whether the commission should eliminate the 60-day rule in favor of a prompt repair rule related to um, the EAS equipment. Uh, the commission proposes that the prompt repair rule that I just described would go into effect 30 days after publication if adopted. The NPRM also seeks to improve awareness of unauthorized access to EAS equipment and seeks comments related thereto. Uh, the current rule, section 11.45b, uh, requires EAS participants to notify the commission by email within 24 hours of its discovery that it has transmitted or otherwise sent a false alert to the public, including details related to the alert uh, to the event. The NPRM suggests that there are significant public safety benefits to um, changing that notification and suggests to strengthen the notification rule. Uh, the commission proposes and seeks comments on revising the rule to require that an EAS participant report any incident of unauthorized access not just um, when a false alert is sent to the public, but when there's an unauthorized access to the EAS equipment. The commission suggests that this notification could be done to the commission via the NORS uh, within 72 hours of when the EAS participant knew or should have known 
that an incident has has occurred and the EAS participant should provide details in that notification related to the unauthorized access. In addition, the NPRM seeks comments on whether to require EAS participants to report any incident of unauthorized access to any aspect of an EAS participant's communication systems and services that potentially could affect their provision of EAS, such as firewalls and virtual private networks. And so the distinction here, I wanna highlight it, is uh, we're not just talking about the EAS equipment and, and unauthorized access to the EAS equipment. The proposal in the NPRM um, is more expansive and looks at any communication systems and services that potentially could affect the EAS um, system. The NPRM suggests that such unauthorized access incidents may affect the equipment and result in a false alert and therefore um, proposes to provide notification. The NPRM suggests that the commission could use the proposed notifications to work with providers and other government agencies uh, to uh, address and resolve equipment uh, that is potentially compromised before the compromise is actually exploited to cause a false alert um, and seeks comments on costs and benefits related to uh, that approach. Uh, in addition, the NPRM suggests that the contents of the notification should include um, the following information, date ranges, descriptions, the impact uh, or potential impact on the EAS participants, operational readiness, a description of the vulnerabilities and techniques used to access the device, um, identifying information for each actor that's responsible and contact information. Um, and seeks uh, comments on the contents of the notification and whether additional categories should be required. In addition, um, the NPRM seeks comments on whether participating CMS providers should also be required to report incidents um, of unauthorized access to their WEA system or to their services like EAS providers. Um, if adopted, those rules would go into effect 60 days after publication. With respect to EAS security specifically, uh, the commission um, ex expresses concerns related to increasing cybersecurity risks and the NPRM proposes to require EAS participants to submit annual certifications attesting that they have created, updated, and implemented a cybersecurity risk management plan describing how the EAS participant employs their organizational resources and processes to ensure the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the EAS. And um, that plan should include security controls sufficient to ensure confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the system and the commission seeks comments on the certification as well as the, um, the proposal for a um, cybersecurity plan. With respect to the annual certification, the commission lays out a proposal whereby EAS participants would be able to check a box as part of its annual filing of the EAS test reporting form one, 
um, and seeks comments on whether or not that approach um, should be adopted. And with respect to the cybersecurity risk management plan, uh, the NPRM details um, several aspects. I'll go through some of them, but there are additional in the NPRM. The commission proposes that the plan is tailored to the EAS participant's organization and that the plan demonstrates that the EAS participant is taking affirmative steps to analyze security risks and improve security. Uh, a couple of approaches that the, uh, the MPRM point to are inclusion uh, in EAS participants' plan, uh, structures that follow NIST's uh, risk management framework or, or the cybersecurity framework. The commission also proposes that EAS participants will have satisfied the requirement to have a cybersecurity risk management plan if they demonstrate that they have successfully implemented an established set of cybersecurity best practices. And the plan addresses measures including things like changing default passwords prior to operation, installing security updates in a timely manner, securing equipment properly behind configured firewalls, and using other segmentation practices as well as listing other factors that could be used, such as requiring multi-factor authentication and addressing replacement for end-of-life equipment um, and how that end-of-life equipment is uh, treated, such as wiping, clearing, and encrypting user information before disposing of the old devices. Um, the NPRM seeks comments on that approach and whether additional alternative approaches or additional factors should be considered. In addition, the NPRM seeks comments on the commission's proposal to require that the cybersecurity management plan address not only the security of the EAS equipment, but also the security of all aspects of an EAS participant's communication systems and services that could potentially affect their provision of EAS. So again, we're moving beyond the EAS equipment um, with this proposal. Uh, it's important to note that the commission um, proposes that the filing of and subsequent compliance with a cybersecurity risk management plan would not serve as a safe harbor for responsibility for negligent security practices, and that an EAS participant's failure to sufficiently develop or implement their plan would be treated as a violation of the commission's rules. The uh, commission seeks comments on that, um, as well as with regard to EAS security, uh, where the NPRM proposes that mobile service providers that participate in WEA also certify that they're creating, annually updating, and implementing a cybersecurity risk management plan. The NPRM seeks comments about whether or not there are additional cybersecurity vulnerabilities that the commission should address and whether the commission should adopt the EAS proposal that I just described or change the proposal in light of uh, the configuration of the WEA. Uh, the NPRM also addresses um, concerns related to the display of only valid WEA messages on mobile devices. Uh, the commission's rules currently require 
the network infrastructure of participating commercial mobile service providers that participate in the WEA to authenticate interactions with mobile devices. However, the NPRM notes that there's no current requirement for mobile devices to ensure that the base station to which a mobile device is connected is valid. Uh, the NPRM details how that, uh, that omission is a potential security risk when a mobile device attempts to authenticate with the provider, switches base stations, or returns to active from idle mode. As a result, the NPRM proposes to require participating commercial mobile service providers that participate in the WEA to transmit sufficient authentication information to allow a mobile device to present the WEA alerts only if they come from a valid base station, such as transmitting sufficient authentication to allow the mobile device to authenticate either the alert or the base station itself. The commission seeks comments on that proposal and an alternative proposal, which uh, proposes uh, that WEA capable mobile devices should receive an appropriate encryption key from the network and then use that key to confirm whether or not an alert is authentic or the base station transmitting it is authentic before presenting the alert to the public. Uh, if adopted, the uh, rules related to WEA alerts would go into effect 30 days after publication. Uh, finally, the MPRM also proposes to eliminate language in the WEA rules that state that the commission requirements, quote, are dependent upon the capabilities of the delivery technologies implemented by a participating CMS provider, end quote, and certain WEA protocols, quote, are defined and controlled by each participating CMS provider, end quote. The commission states that this language could unintentionally create uncertainties about the quality of the WEAS service offered by participating commercial mobile service providers, and that these statements may create a mistaken impression that compliance with the rules would be conditioned upon the providers delivery technology. The MPRM seeks comments on the removal of these statements from the rules. And if adopted, those the removal of those statements would go into effect 30 days after publication. Chairwoman uh, Rosenworcel and uh, Commissioner Stark submitted supporting statements to the MPRM and Commissioner Stark noted that the proposals are consistent with other efforts at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency as it implements the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022 and is consistent with recent efforts to push providers receiving universal service funding support to have cybersecurity risk management plans in place. Uh, the MPRM was adopted uh, unanimously and comments uh, will be due 30 days after publication with reply comments 30 days thereafter. Thanks everybody for joining us. Um, that's our first take of the FCC open meeting from October. Uh, we'll be back again in November with our first take on the FCC's actions in November. Thank you. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP its staff or management.